between zero and 300 miles an hour, it's sliding all over the place because we've got solid aluminium wheels, which don't grip the desert very well. So we broke the sound barrier officially five times, uh, probably six. So every morning in America, you know, I'd be out there at eight or nine o'clock in the morning going for a 600 mile an hour drive. After a bit, it became very repetitious. <laughs> the Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd, brought to you by Chubb Insurance, expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882. Hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Chubb Interviews. I'm Jodie Kidd. I really hope that you've all been keeping well. And with the lockdown eased, maybe even had the chance to get out and about since our last podcast. Thank you so much for all your fantastic feedback from the series so far. If this is your first time you've tuned in to the Chubb Interviews podcast series, greetings, classic car fans. You can, of course, catch up with all our previous episodes to while away the hours as summer really kicks in. In this series, we talked to fellow classic car lovers, exploring the personal stories of the people who inhabit this wonderful world. And in this episode, we're lucky enough to welcome a speed icon, a Usain Bolt on wheels. For much of the 80s and 90s, he held the world land speed record. It is, of course, Mr. Richard Noble OBE. Now, before we speak to Richard, let's bring in this episode's co-host. It's Will Dron, editor of driving.co.uk at the Sunday Times. So welcome to the Chubb interviews, Will. How are you? Hi, Jodie. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Now, tell me, it's all been a very kind of strange year for everyone. What uh, has locked down? I mean, of course, from a apart from not being able to get out and do anything, what, what's it been like? Well, it's been a, a nightmare, hasn't it? I mean, we haven't been able to drive for three months. Yeah. Except to go to the shops, perhaps. You know, yeah. the thrill of realising you've run out of milk. I know. Honey, I'm just nipping to the shop. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I, know. Um, but I, I totally I'm, get you there. It's been a bit up and down. I've, I've got lockdowns lifting, of course, so I'm, I'm getting to drive new cars again, which is which is fab. Incredible. So, yeah, so th- going back to, to being a motor journalist how did you fall into that world uh well my dad uh tony was a racing driver and he and his brother were both motoring journalists so i didn't really have much chance i don't think (laughs) yeah although i loved cars and racing you know Ayrton senna was a a real hero of mine growing up i I tried to Mm. avoid becoming a motoring journalist um i think i sort of thought the world didn't really need another drawn motoring writer (laughs) <laughs> um, well, I mean, I have to say, Erton, I think, is a, a hero of, of everyone's. Um, my my nephew, uh, his middle name is Erton, actually. So um, that's how much my kind of family were obsessed with him. Um, yeah, growing up I've got a nephew man. called Senna. <laughs> have you? I think yes. <laughs> it's amazing. Amazing. You just said um, that lockdown has kind of come to an end and you've been able to, to get behind the wheel of some cars. Have you been driving anything particularly exciting? Uh, yeah, it's, it's all kicking off again. Uh, recently, I've driven the new Polestar Two electric car, which is which is very nippy nippy indeed. I've driven a brace of Lotuses recently, and I had a Mustang GT Special Edition celebrating the Pony Car's fifty fifth anniversary recently, which was which was great oh, fun. And coming up, I've got you know a, a number of things that have been delayed during lockdown. So there's a very mm-hmm. delayed drive of the Land Rover Defender. Uh, I've yes. Got a, what do you think of that? Uh, what they've come up with, I think, is fabulous. I think it, it retains that look 
uh, but it's got all the modern stuff that you need in a, in a new car. But it will still, you know, wade to ridiculous depths and climb rocks. I think they've done an amazing job. Yeah, exactly. Good point. So tell us about the Sunday Times driving. Uh, well, it's the motoring section of the Sunday Times, funnily enough. It's it's found within the Sunday Times magazine, um, mm-hmm. and that's edited by uh, Nick Rufford, who I work with closely, and I edit driving.co.uk. It's got daily news and reviews and features. Um, mm-hmm. And Nick and I now take turns in a weekly slot on Times Radio, uh, which is on Sunday afternoons just after 3 p.m., so, Will, so excited to introduce Richard Noble and have a chat with him as our special guest in today's podcast, um, who's an OBE. Did you manage to catch up with any of our other podcasts? Because we had an MBE last time, which was the incredible Derek Bell. I did absolutely catch the Derek Bell podcast. It was it was really fascinating. Um, as you know, a motor racing fan, that was just lovely to hear. And he just sounds like such a a nice guy. I haven't had the honour of interviewing myself, but um, he's of that sort of era of racing as my dad. And I know they did Le Mans, uh, both did Le Mans. And it was nice to hear him talk about the special race that was with his son, mm. um, having had a, a racing father myself. Sadly, I haven't gone on to race myself, Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but that was a, a great one to listen to. Yeah, it was. He he was um, totally inspirational, and um, and I'm so excited to listen to Richard because he's another incredible, inspirational man. All these honours, I tell you, we're very lucky with our guests. <laughs> I haven't received mine yet. Have you got one, Jodie? Yes, exactly. I'm waiting. I think it's lost in the post. <laughs> <laughs> it must be. Brilliant. Now, listen, we've got to get on. We could chat away forever, but I'm sure that um, everyone out there really wants to listen to our special guest. Um, and when I was a youngster, I mean, he was... A, a huge inspiration and he belongs to an elite group of people who attempt to do something extraordinary and actually succeed. So Will, can you sum up today's guest? Well, he's a man who only knows one speed, really. It's flat out. Um, and he wants to go fast, not just on land, but in, in the air and on water too. To younger people, he's something of an inspiration because he, he comes from an age when uh, Brits believed they could do anything and it was all there for the taking and if you if you just had the will and, and the grit. Um, but what marks out uh, Richard is that he actually, he did it. He built his land speed record cars with very limited resources initially and, and raced them and broke the records. He's a, he's a fighter, he's a battler, he takes risks and um, not everything has come off, it has to be said, but he could fairly argue that he's achieved his goals both from the cockpit and outside it. Um, I guess we'll come on to that, some of that in a bit, no doubt. But Richard turned up at Black Rock with Thrust 2 and, and he pit the record by Blue Flame by just 11 miles per hour. Um, then he obliterated that record in 1997 with Thrust SSC, which was piloted by Andy Green. That car hit 763 miles per hour, uh, which is a record mm-hmm. that still stands today. Um, and then after that, that wasn't enough. He set his sights on a thousand miles per hour with the Bloodhound SSC rocket car. So I think it's that it's that pioneering spirit and that that will to just go beyond what people think is possible. I'm so excited to have this chat because I love speed and there is something about humans that speed is so important to us and for our incredible guests to have broken every record and just be such an inspiration to all our kind of speed freaks out there. So I'm so, so excited to say hello to our special guest, Mr. Richard Noble OBE. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm, uh, life is pretty good at the moment. And um, from my mm-hmm. point of view, it's been a period where I've been in lockdown and I've been able to study extensively. 
and working on the, 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 the next projects which are coming along at the moment now. And Richard, so before we go into everything, I also want to introduce you to Will Dron, who is a, um, a journalist at the Sunday Times who's going to be co-hosting and has got some fantastic questions as well to ask you throughout the podcast. Hi, Richard. Good to meet you. Hello, Will. <laughs> I read you every Sunday. <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. Right. So, Richard, in all our episodes, we ask our guests who and what was their biggest influence. So you're a land speed record holder. You're an engineer. You're a man that likes to push the envelope with everything that you do. Where did that motivation first begin and, and what was that spark? Well, curiously enough, it happened when I was age six. Um, my dad was in the army and he, um, uh, he was based at Inverness in Scotland. And one day he decided to take us all for a, a Sunday drive around the north side of Loch Ness. And, uh, when we came to Temple Pier there, uh, um, based there was John Cobb's jet boat, Crusader. So this was a time when most airplanes had propellers and this guy had somehow got a hold of a jet engine and built it into the most futuristic vessel you've ever seen. And I was just absolutely amazed by this. And, uh, you know, and I went home as, as a kid and I studied, I started building um, jet engines out of, out of cardboard, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, well, Jody never let go. So, um, you know, here we are. We're still going. <laughs> I mean, that's an incredible inspiration. But, I mean, your mm. start of your career path was actually fairly conventional with ICI. But it, was it a trip in a Land Rover Series 2 that sort of changed everything for you, Richard? Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of changes there. I think I did somehow get it right. I started selling uh, Dulux paint um, <laughs> and uh, wallpapers, um, and they were the ICI people were incredibly professional, and I learned so much from those guys. I really did. And then I made a move into man-made fibers. And by the age of 25, I was responsible for 20 million sales. And uh, if anybody remembers Crimpling, <laughs> we were the Crimpling <laughs> kings. <laughs> and it was amazing. absolutely amazing experience. And all down to one man who was um, our, our, um, our director, who was a real leader and really held the thing together. That was great. And then, the, um, of course, what we realized eventually was that the patent under which this stuff was made uh, was coming to an end and the competition came in and suddenly the prices dropped and uh, suddenly we weren't so comfortable. I decided at that point that I, I really wanted to go. I wanted to see the world, so I bought an old Land Rover, collected some people and we drove to Cape Town. What an experience to drive across Africa. Yes, I mean, it really was. I mean, we, we had a terrible accident in the middle of the Sahara that we got ourselves oh, no. up to that one. We went through the Congo. We got to build bridges all the time to get the Land Rover across. We used to dance with the local people around their fires at night, which was great fun. Wow. <laughs> uh, then into East Africa and then eventually down to South Africa. Then got another team together and we went back to London via India. And I got lost at Dover, but otherwise all right. <laughs> did you? <laughs> so you, you dropped everyone Tricky off in, in South Africa, did you? I dropped the first log off in South Africa, yes. I mean, we're all friends and we meet up on a regular basis. I mean, this uh, this is such, an, you've got such an adventurous, kind of daring, wonderful kind of attitude and spirit. Where did this character traits come from? Were they, were they learnt? Were they inherited? I just wanted to see the world. I also wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. 
you know, this was a chance before, obviously, you got stuck with mortgages and wives and families and everything else. You then started doing the world records. I mean, how does one get started in that? Where, where did you get the money from and who did you have to help you at that time? Well, I was very lucky. I had my beloved aunt, Boa, and Boa decided I, I needed a decent motor car. And so um, I was loaned some money, which enabled me to buy a TR6, which I enjoyed a lot. Lovely. But uh, Lovely. I had to flog it very quickly because I needed a jet engine. So <laughs> I traded the, the TR6 for a jet engine. And uh, I built a very, very crude car called um, Thrust One, which was really, um, it was just bloody dangerous. It really was. I was no engineer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just put this thing together. But I learned so much from it. We eventually had a bad crash. Um, we did a triple airborne roll, and uh, that was that was the end of Thrust One. It wasn't the most successful record attempt, was it? No, it wasn't a record attempt. <laughs> we're just running it down the <laughs> we, runway, just to get some experience. But you were after the British record at that time, weren't you? Well, yes, we were. That, you're absolutely right there. And the plan was to try and run it on the M11. And the civil servants got very excited about all this and said, yes, it should happen, and what fun. Because, of course, the M11 hadn't actually been open in those at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, but then they got worked up over the jet exhaust and the um, the asphalt between the between the bits of concrete on the road. And uh, they, they, they went out, I'm afraid. So we didn't get a chance then. But Thrust One was scrapped, wasn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, we've got a real serious cash flow problem. We've got to keep going. We just wrecked, <laughs> wrecked the only asset we had, the car. So uh, we pushed off the local scrapyard on the way home. For 175 quid. Oh. And the, the Do you sometimes said, wish you still had that? Uh, no. <laughs> the scrappy <laughs> said to me, We'll soon get the, that jet engine going again. And I said, No, you bloody won't. It's been shot loaded <laughs> and the ignition system could kill you. <laughs> so he changed his mind after that. Yeah. Well, after that came Thrust 2, which was much more successful. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And, yes, uh, Thrust 2 really is the, is the brilliant work of one man, John Ackroyd. And uh, I, I really wanted to do all this, but I, I was having terrible problems because I was um, traveling extensively around the world on uh, for um, GKN's work at that, uh, that particular stage. And um, we managed to get a column, very short column in the um, in Daily Telegraph, which said wanted 650 mile an hour car designer. And, um, <laughs> and I uh, added all the names of the companies who'd helped us. For instance, you know, the giant Lucas Industries, had given us about um, two feet of cable, electric cable, so they went in as a sponsor. And all these big names, <laughs> the result of which was we got a, a, a sort of bevy of engineers um, making contact, wanting to do this, and all wanting to charge huge sums of money. But uh, John Ackroyd was the man. John was absolutely determined to do this. And uh, um, I was just very, very lucky to meet him. And he not only designed the car, but also did all the drawings, and also helped, of course, enormously with the development of the program. So uh, the Thrust 2 car was one of the most successful land speed cars of all time. It uh, We set out to have a, um, a peak speed, VMAX, we call it, of uh, 650 miles an hour, and we got it up to 650.88. And it ran absolutely straight as a die, again and again and again. So every morning in America, you know, I'd be out there sitting in the car and eight or nine o'clock in the morning and um, going for a 600 mile an hour drive. After a bit, it became very repetitious. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. I mean, I, I can't even fathom those kind of speeds. What, what, does it, what does it feel like kind of on the body 
doing 633 miles an hour, which I think was the the the, the record in 83. That was the record speed, yes. Um, well, let's just try and explain. Um, basically, if you had a ride in, a, in a, either Concorde or a jet fighter, you get a pretty good mm-hmm. idea of what this thing's like. It accelerates around 2G, but it's absolutely re- relentless. You don't change gear like a conventional car. This just gets mm-hmm. faster and faster and faster. Between zero and 300 miles an hour, it's sliding all over the place because we've got solid aluminium wheels, which don't grip the desert very well. And we need to get it up to 300 plus miles an hour when we've got decent aerodynamic stability. Uh, John designed it very cleverly with two tail fins, and that gave us great, great stability. 300 to 550 tends to be a bit boring. It's just more and more of the same, and goes faster and faster. <laughs> um, but then when you start <laughs> around uh, the, the, the start, the late 500s, the high 500s and the start of the 600s, you start to see the shockwaves develop as the airflow locally goes supersonic over bits of the car. So you see wow. shockwaves on the intake and shockwaves over the wheel arches. Now, the extraordinary thing about all this is um, is basically driving it is that, and I've been driving it for a long time, so I've got a lot of experience with it, was that um, your mental process is speed right up. So everything happens in very slow motion. It's a very gentle country drive, really. Um, you're just sitting there. You can see every single detail on the road come up and go underneath uh, the car. Uh, for instance, the timekeepers had driven across the, the, the track again and again to service the timing lights. And, you know, I could see the wheel marks come up and go underneath the car. Amazing. The fun really starts when you've got to stop and you come <laughs> out the other end at 650 miles an hour. And uh, first of all, you've got to cool the engine for three seconds, which seems like an eternity. Uh, then you can stop cock the engine so it stops the fuel going into the engine and shuts, shuts it down. Uh, but uh, and at the same time, you fire the brake parachute which is a, um, a, a nuclear bomb parachute, which is designed for speeds of over 600 miles an hour. Deploy that, wow. and immediately you get a deceleration of between 5 and 6 G. So Ooh. you're losing speed around Gosh. 130 miles an hour a second. That's huge. And that gives you an extraordinary effect called a somatographic illusion. Wow. And um, rather like an old television, what happens is the de- extreme deceleration upsets your inner airs, which give you the balance. And um, the picture that you see through your eyes goes up like an old television did. You know, in the old days, you sort of have that vertical hold knob. And uh, you are convinced you're driving straight down into the middle of the earth. It's the most extraordinary experience. Wow. And then um, you're down to a sort of leisurely 400 or so, and then you can sort of relax. That's amazing. Um, and um, at that point, basically, it's, it's all over. You've just got to remember to bring the wheel brakes in about 200 miles an hour, bring it to a halt, and then write down everything. So you've got a complete record of uh, of what was done. And how quickly in time um, would you would it have been to get up to the six hundred and thirty three miles an hour? Um, about a minute. A minute. Wow. So... Yeah, a minute of full power. That's thirty five thousand horsepower. <laughs> wow. I just. I mean, <laughs> tremendous I just remember... noise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet. I mean, I just remember these iconic images that were kind of like that we remember sitting at home of just this bullet going across with these plumes of sand coming up. I mean, it was yeah. it's something that's kind of etched in my my mind, I mean, forever and ever and, and would have inspired many, many generations. Um, it's just extraordinary and uh, amazing to think what 
your body goes through. And I've never even heard of that. Do, do fighter jet pilots get that? That Not really, no. They don't accelerate. No. They don't accelerate so fast or decelerate so fast. Except possibly right. on landing on an aircraft carrier. I would think you're somewhere around there. Yeah, and on reflection, taking off landing from an aircraft carrier. You're somewhere around there, so busy. Yes. And why, why was it so important to get the world record? Well, because um, this seemed pointless doing anything other than the world record. Um, mm. What is actually happening is you're putting together a, quite a large organization. There are about 200 companies involved in it. Um, you know, um, you've got to um, raise a lot of money. Thrust one cost about a million pounds, which was a lot of money in 1983. Mm. Wow. And, um, you know, and so you've got to have a, a terrific ambition so that the um, – the sponsors who are funding it um, really feel part of something very special and have something they, they can really promote. Yeah, so, I mean, thanks to you and your team, Britain held the land speed record once again. You get back into the fray with Thrust SSC, but you're not behind the wheel this time. What made you decide to hand over driving duties? This is a very, very trying time, I can tell you. Uh, basically, what had happened was that the Americans had decided they were going for the sound barrier. This is a friend of mine called Craig Breedlove, who'd already held the world land speed record five times from the 60s onwards. And I was out there on Bonneville with uh, with all my friends out there, and uh, we, were, um, we were running another car. And when I got back, we then discovered that the McLaren Formula One team decided they were going to build a, a supersonic car called the Maverick. Uh, taking yeah. on a project like this is a huge undertaking, and you really have to understand every single bit of it. Anyhow, we were very lucky because we met up, or I met up with Ron Ayres, and Ron was the uh, missile aerodynamicist who was retired and bored out of his mind, uh, the cleverest man I've ever met. <laughs> and uh, so Ron agreed that he would try and help us. And then we did rocket testing um, at um, Pendine in South Wales, where we had our rocket models accelerating from zero to 820 miles an hour in 0.8 of a second. This is spectacular stuff. Do you know, I, I remember that, Richard. I remember <laughs> yeah. that because I, I remember seeing the, just the rocket and just thinking, oh, my word, this is, what is this? I was young at the time, but it, yeah. it, for me it was spectacular, yeah. And also, of course, we'd worked with Swansea University and we'd done the first ever computational fluid dynamics um, analysis on a car. So we were about 10 years ahead of Formula One. We had a real problem because Ron um, was, was not very happy with the Swansea work, not because of the quality of the Swansea work, but, but basically this had never been done before. And he was unsure as to whether he should trust it. So that's when we started doing the rocket testing. And we got uh, the data. We did, I can't remember, it's about 11 rocket runs, I think. And we got the data from the rocket testing and we compared it with the CFD and we got a straight line analysis. It was absolutely incredible. One had proved the other. And that, from that moment onwards, we knew we could do it. So we then announced the project in London and the McLaren people sort of gave up at that point. But we had an enormous problem. Having done all the research and proven it, I then went round all the big companies saying, look, we held a world land speed record. We're, we're now up against the Americans. We're going to take them on. We're going to break the sound barrier. We're going to be the first ones to do this. Um, are you on? And they all sort of ran away. I mean, nobody was prepared <laughs> to help. Nobody. They were all actually scared, rigid by it. And yeah. uh, so this is very sad. And I realized that um, I'd have to give up any hope of driving this. I just somebody got to concentrate on making the money. Otherwise, this wonderful project would just never happen. 
So uh, I abandoned that. And um, then we ran a, an extensive um, six-month program with the Center for Humans and Sciences at Farnborough. I think, I can't remember the exact numbers, I think about 36 people applied to drive. And mm. it was one of these, we set it up as one of these things where um, the driver was never chosen. The driver had to win the competition. And uh, Andy won the competition, um, hands down. He did a really wonderful job. And of course, uh, went on to, to, to drive the car to huge success. What was the competition that Andy had to, to win in order to get the drive? It was all put together by um, a wonderful guy who sadly is no longer with us called Roger Green, who's a psychologist. And they do a lot of this for the uh, the fighter pilots and so on to an- analyze them. And so what we had to do is, first of all, look at uh, their IQ, uh, their mental processing. That's a sort of stage one. Then after that, we then, um, uh, a month or so later, we put them in all the um, survivors, because obviously we've got to wash people out all the way through this thing, uh, into a laboratory and we heated them up to high temperature and, and made them work continuously for 24 hours. I couldn't do it. I wasn't up to this at all. I really wasn't. But uh, some mm. of them were extremely good. Then we did uh, driving, which was very interesting. There's a, we found a muddy track up in North Yorkshire. And we were able then to borrow some Volkswagen rally cars and to give them some driving experience. This was absolutely fascinating. And Andy wasn't the fastest, but um, he was the most he learned from it and you could see all the time mm. that he was learning as he went faster and faster and faster. So he came out number two on that. And the third one, third part of the test was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Because our problem was that we were creating um, a project that's beginning to generate an enormous amount of publicity. And it all depends on teamwork. Teamwork is everything. Mm. And um, there's a real danger with a project like this with all the publicity that we're going to create um, you know, somebody who shows really very little interest in the teamwork. You see this often badly portrayed in Formula One. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the drivers all live in <laughs> live in Monaco, Monaco. and uh, occasionally yeah, yes. meet up with the people who graft away building and designing the cars, which is very bad. Yeah. So we wanted to be sure that we were going to get somebody who was going to integrate properly with the team. And this was a genius of an idea of Roger's. So what happened was we we told them that they got to the last four, that they got to design the cockpit for the car, and they got to go and um, put together their assessment of the project, what our chances were of success. And everything had to be in Ron's house by midnight on such and such a date. So Ron and I sat there at midnight, <laughs> and all this wonderful stuff came through the letterbox, and we chucked it straight into the filing cabinet with unread, because that wasn't the objective. The objective, of course, was to get the, the potential drivers to meet the team. Um, and they would have to do that, of course, in order to assess the project. Got it. And uh, so what uh, Roger did was to um, wait until um, all the documentation was in. And then the next day, he sent a, a very detailed questionnaire around the, around the team. And they voted. And they voted for Andy. So it's hugely successful. Very interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so we had a very strong, very cohesive team. Uh, it was very clever. We owe a great deal to Roger Green. So Thrust SSC did successfully, as the name implies, go supersonic. Um, it was literally the first time that this had ever happened on land. Can you tell us a bit about how you prepare for something like that? 
Well, what we'd done, of course, was to um, was to do all that research, and Ron had kept a very tight hold on the uh, on the performance calculations of the car. He has a spreadsheet the size of the Albert Hall, you know, which covers, covers <laughs> every single aspect of it. And um, and really, when you get down to it, it it's a, as I say, it's a team thing. And uh, Ron was really the person who who held us, who gave us all the confidence. I mean, we were all beginners, and uh, you know, we'd never broken a sound barrier or done anything supersonic. But Ron was there, and Ron was calmly saying, "Yes, it's okay. Yes, just keep going. It's going to be all right." Uh, we got the car done. We'd been to Jordan to do twice to do our test runs there, thanks to the late King Hussein, who was a very great friend. And um, we um, we now got to go to America to take on um, Craig Breedlove head to head. And um, nobody wanted to do it. It was so embarrassing. It just was awful. Um, and so there we are. We built the car. We, um, you know, we got it up to over 500 miles an hour. We couldn't go any faster in Jordan. Now we've got to go to America and finish the job. And uh, nobody was interested. It was, a, it was a terrible situation. We were working in Farnborough then. We, got our, um, we, we, we were very lucky we'd been lent a building there. And as you go into the building, there's a sort of notice board. And on the notice board, I put the percentage of budget that we got, just so that everybody knew exactly where, where, where we are. These are very open projects. Everybody takes a lot of personal risk and a thing like this. Mm. And um, I can't remember the exact figure, but I think we got to about 11% and we got a month to go. And the engineers held a meeting and then they just said, well, if we walk out at this particular point, the project will never survive. Uh, so we've got to keep going, regardless of the budget situation. We've simply got to keep going. So that was their decision, which was really good. So it kept it going. And then an extraordinary thing happened. Uh, it's absolutely unbelievable. We borrowed an Antonov freighter. This is one of these enormous 127 Antonovs. Um, mm. We borrowed this freighter. But we couldn't get the fuel for it. We needed a million liters of jet fuel to get us to America and back. <laughs> and uh, nobody was going to help. Nobody's showed any interest whatsoever. And uh, so it was a really difficult situation. And um, one man, Jeremy Davy, who ran the, uh, the website, um, was the IT genius. And he simply said, look, Richard, it's very simple. We get all our followers from all over the world to, uh, to buy the fuel. Good idea, Jeremy, I said. <laughs> so we, we put the thing together. We put it all together that night and put it on the web. And the next morning, uh, there was... Um, 30,000 gallons of jet fuel. Amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It saved the project. Yeah. You've got to beat the system. The system is to set up to stop people like me because, uh, you know, we're, um, we're not reliable. We're, uh, we're dangerous. We're innovators. We're creators, you know. And a lot of people just don't like that sort of thing because it represents risk. So that's why I've created the Take Risk book. Yeah. The supersonic runs were absolutely astonishing. So if you imagine you were standing with me at the midpoint of the course and Andy's got a, on his 13-mile course, he's on his way up, and you see this black car coming, coming up faster than any airplane you've ever seen in complete silence. And then it comes alongside and there's sort of two huge double bangs, bang, bang, like that from the lead shot wave and from the, trail, the trailing shot wave. And um, huh. and basically, you see all the cars and trucks rock. Amazing. And the media people, we generally had about 200 media there. These guys were very, very silent. They uh, realized it was an <laughs> absolute hell of a thing. 
from my point of view, I was faced with a hell of a situation because, um, you know, this is, this is, we set out to do this and there we are actually doing it. But by God, is it dangerous? I mean, what's going to happen? Is Andy going to get killed? Oh my God. And it's my responsibility to actually stop it as the director. So we broke the sound barrier officially five times, uh, probably six. I can't imagine that feeling of the whole team there when you first did it. I mean, it must have been just the best feeling in the world. Oh, my God, yes, yes. First of all, when we broke the Thrust 2 record, and we got a record of 714, which is a huge leap forward. And then when the first supersonic bangs were had, uh, and generally there was a sort of community of, uh, um, I suppose, 50 or 100 Americans who lived in that campus up on the hills um, just so they could look down and watch all this. And they picked up the supersonic bangs before anybody else. And in the little village of Gerlach, <laughs> which is 15 miles away from the midpoint of the course, was shaking all the buildings. And um, <gasps> in the school, it knocked all the covers off the, off the, the sprinklers in the classrooms. So this is Amazing. real motion. You know, not just running All the kids stuff. there have turned into engineers <laughs> as a result of yeah, what you did. <laughs> the mind-blowing experience. <laughs> Uh, what what an experience, as you said. So um, bringing it a little bit back, but when you're not travelling at the speed of sound, um, what is your car that you drive day to day? Oh, I have a terrible problem with cars, uh, a really <laughs> awful problem, because the fundamental problem is if you've driven really, really fast, yeah. it's, it's like riding a bicycle. You can always do it again and again and again. And um, I came back and a friend of mine was going to lend me some money so I could buy myself a Ferrari. And yeah. <laughs> suddenly I realized I can't do this. I really, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be in terrible trouble. So I always drive a Golf. And I love my Golf. Oh, it's brilliant. got 273,000 miles on the clock. And uh, I've just rebuilt the engine. And uh, we should get another couple of hundred thousand on it. Absolutely. I think a lot of F1 drivers have the same sort of issue, don't they? I'm sure they do. <laughs> the title of your new book was Take Risk. It's really all about your extraordinary stories behind all your record-breaking projects. And it's a fantastic read. Can you tell us a little bit about the book, with obviously not spoiling it, but also about managing risk in your own kind of professional life? We live with risk and we pile risk on top of risk on top of risk. And after a bit, you get very familiar with risk. You get a, a, a complete understanding of risk and living with risk and welcoming risk. Because you can't innovate unless you take risk. Mm. And, of course, our fundamental problem is that we don't innovate and we don't take risk. And, uh, you know, we really need to get it across to the kids, to the next generation. Look, guys, we have to change. Can you tell us a bit more about the programme, which I think is called, which involves the kids, which is called STEM? All right. Now, OK, STEM is uh, the subject, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Right. Um, this was an extraordinary situation because... We had set out to build the uh, Bloodhound SFC car. Uh, this is going to be the perfect and ultimate land speed record car. We weren't going to use 30-year-old jet engines like we did in um, France SSC. Uh, we wanted the most modern and most advanced equipment we possibly could. This was, this was our kind of swan song. You know, this was a chance to really show what we could do. Yeah. And uh, we had a meeting with the Minister of Defence. It went very well. They were very excited. And uh, then um, when I asked for the jet engines, they weren't so enthusiastic, as <laughs> you might imagine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so our meeting, Andy and I's meeting with the minister had failed. And we got up to sort of leave the room and thank him for his time and everything else. He stopped us and he said, look, 
something just occurred to me. We cannot recruit scientists and engineers. And of course, the world is moving on and, uh, you know, we really need this. And uh, it's an education problem. Our education processes, the country's education, are not up to this. We've got a real problem. And he said, uh, we didn't actually have so much of a problem at the time of Concord because Concord inspired so many people. Mm. Uh, it was such, such an absolutely brilliant project. Um, yeah. And he said, um, you know, they encouraged large numbers of kids to consider being engineers. So he said, I want you to take the uh, project through every single school in the country. So I said, yes, of course we'll do that. So we set this thing up. We started off with a collection of um, very capable people who helped with the, the education, getting it going and everything else. But I got a problem. Uh, my problem was that I'm not an educationist, and I was worried about the teachers. What the hell do the teachers think about all this? Would they use yeah. it? So we've got to meet teachers. So we took a stand at uh, um, a thing called the Bet Show, which is the big annual education show. And I managed to get sort of 10 or 15 people there to help. And what we did was we grabbed all the teachers as they came down the various corridors, et cetera, and we isolated the STEM teachers, the science, technology, engineering, mathematics teachers, and we said to them, look, um, uh, we, we need a meeting to discuss all this. Uh, will you be back here at 3 o'clock? And they said, yes, they would. So we ended up with a collection of us, 30 or 40 teachers. And so I explained what we were trying to do. And I said, look, you know, is this any good to you? Uh, will it help you? Um, you know, we, we need to connect with you guys. And uh, there, there was a whole lot of bums and ahs and sort of traditional sort of talk, which is very boring. Mm. And then one man just said, look, he said, if you're really going to do this, this is what we really need. We need all the data from the car so we can take this through our classroom, to our classes, and they can understand just what's going on. And they can follow the whole thing through. And I said, that's absolutely fine by us because our... Um, you know, we want to do this as an open project. We're not going to hide the IP. We're not going to hide the technology. This guy then mentioned all this. And then all the other teachers said, yeah, that would be great. We should do that. <laughs> but you, you've still, in the meantime, that project actually is, is wonderful because it's got kids back using their hands mm. and getting involved in the science and engineering. Yeah. Now, there's another point you've just raised there, which is really valuable. Um, when we realized that we couldn't run the car, for record runs in 2017. As a team, we decided what we've got to do is we've got to run the car, at least to show the thing worked. And we had three days at Newquay Airport um, when we could run it for our, for our guests, for our friends, for um, the general public. And we had huge numbers of people turn up, 10,000 people turned up. And on the third day, we had um, a day for the schools. So I can't, there were 3,000 school children turned up. And um, this, my God, we really learned something from this. So huge numbers of kids arrived at uh, this place. And um, I found the engineers doing the engineers thing, which was just talking amongst themselves. So I was really very rude to them and said, look, guys, you've got to talk to the kids. It's about education. You've got to do this, please. Mm. And I, I went away and then I came back and I found this the huge peals of laughter. All the kids were asking all the questions. The engineers were getting a huge buzz out of all this. It was working very well. And then we started running the car and the effect on the kids was just mind-blowing. I mean, you know, this thing's got an afterburner. It's incredibly noisy. And it was zooming up the track to 200 miles an hour, which is as fast as we could go um, with, uh, without uh, overspeeding the tires and so on. And the kids were just absolutely wild. 
And then I realized what was happening. The fundamental problem is that the kids and schools are on screens. Yes. They're all on screens. And the, the problem is with the screens is that everything on screen is tweaked and faked. So they're not getting reality. Yeah. Yeah, we're running the car and they were getting reality big time. Lots of noise, yeah. terrific acceleration, and Andy Green to talk to. I mean, it was it was just absolutely magic. Yes, so I wanted to kind of come off the back about, you know, this. it's so important to inspire the younger generation and, and by your passion and going to all those schools that you did and showing them, um, you know, firsthand um, what it looks like, what it feels like, the noise of it is so important. I promise you, you would have, you would have inspired so many children from that. And it's something that Chubb are really passionate about and they work with this, it's called Starter Motor mm-hmm. and it's a charity, it's a fantastic charity and it encourages like everything that you've said to get kids off their screens and back into artisan skills about oh, learning good. about cars yep. and engines and restoration so yep. my goodness you you inspired me and i can't even imagine how many other thousands of kids that you've inspired um so so well done for doing that it is fantastic well it's a great team thing great great team thing and uh, it's had a huge effect and we were doing as i say over 100,000 kids a year. It was really massive. Yeah. Yeah. So bringing it uh, forward a bit to to what you're doing now, Richard, in the intervening years, you've turned your hand to uh, a few projects in the skies and on water. What are you working mm. on at the moment? We've got um, three big projects in development at the moment. I'm not really able to talk about them, except one which is quite interesting, which is that uh, um, I was uh, very fired up by um, John Cobb's water speed record boat. And yes. uh, this extraordinary thing when I was age six in the 1950s. And it wasn't until much later, uh, like I think 2018, when uh, Evro published a book on the great Reed Railton, who was the, one of the greatest engineers this country's ever produced. And Reed was very upset over the accident um, at Loch Ness, which killed Cobb. Mm. and he decided he was going to produce the ultimate boat. And he created a, um, the design for a boat, the likes of which we've never seen before. Uh, it doesn't look like a boat. <laughs> and um, knowing this man was an absolute genius, I was really interested. And I, I managed to get a copy of the book, and um, I saw some photographs of it. One thing led to another, and I was able to buy the... Um, uh, the uh, um, tank test model. So we've got an actual model for it. Fantastic. Then with some help, we scanned the model because there aren't any drawings, created our drawings, and we've created two versions of it with uh, jet engines, small jet engines. The, these are six-foot models. And uh, we wanted to just find out what happens. Does it work? Did, did the old boy get it right? And, uh, you know, so we've been working away at that. Unfortunately, COVID has made life a bit difficult. But uh, we've mm. got weather again down in Cornwall where we're doing our testing. And uh, last week, we got a, quite a good run. It wasn't fully planning, but yeah, and we're starting to get really quite excited. This isn't just a sort of amateur model. You know, this is a, uh, the, the, these models are heavy. They weigh 50 pounds and they've got 60 pounds of thrust. So, you know, it's quite a, quite a little missile, really, one way or another. And um, it's going to be very interesting. We're going to um, develop that and uh, see whether we can take it for, take it further forward. So do you know yet if Railton did get it right? No, it's too early to say. Because oh. unfortunately what happened with him was he came up with these ideas, but um, the money went to um, the Campbell outfit. So consequently, right. um, Railton's 300-mile-an-hour boat 
basically never saw the light of day, which was very sad. Uh, the book is called Relton Man of Speed. It's an astonishing read. Great, great man. What is the current record on water? It has stood since 1978. Oh, so and it's the it is uh, 317 miles an hour. Wow. Okay. Well, watch this space. Um, but there's one thing that we've been running uh, throughout the podcast, and it's something called One Piece at a Time. And it's where we ask our guests to select one prize possession that means a lot to them. Golly. Obviously, we're in COVID, so we can't see it. But if you could uh, explain what your one piece is, and then if you could tweet a picture of it or send us a picture, then we'll put them all together. And at the end of the series, we'll have a beautiful collection. And I can't yeah, sure. wait for your ones because we've had, you know, all very typical kind of car bits. So um, I can't wait to hear what your one piece of a time is. Well, I used to, I used to fly a lot. And I had airplanes, and I loved my airplanes. But um, my problem with the airplanes was that um, basically people didn't really like flying with me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I wonder and, why. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not a really social thing. I felt, and um, so I uh, basically migrated to boats. Every night I'd get out the iPad and search for boats for sale, and I, I, they all looked like um, Christmas cakes, you know, wedding cakes, and mm -hmm. I just uh, didn't turn me off at all until I found it in Norway which was a military patrol boat called a Combat 90E, which is a very, very clever boat. Um, and um, they've been used for um, uh, search and rescue and also used for uh, providing ambulance and fire engine support to the people in Norway and in Sweden. It's taken me five years to sort of restore it, but it is a oh, truly wow. wonderful thing. It's carbon fiber hull, got a huge truck, engine to drive it which goes on forever and it's got a, a, a rolls-royce camille water jet and so this thing does nearly 50 miles an hour and you can wow it's just a fabulous thing and uh, we last week we took it down to um to farmers we did 400 miles last week in it and it was really good so um yeah i love this thing dearly amazing oh my goodness i can't <laughs> wait to see i was actually just leaning towards my phone just to kind of type it in to see what it looks like. I can't wait to see it. Sounds incredible. Um, well, I'm going to invite myself. I have to say I'm going to have to come down and um, pay a visit and come and, come yeah, and have a little trip out. Absolutely. <laughs> come and drive it. Yeah. <laughs> We've gone so past our allotted time. I mean, literally, I could sit and just listen to your stories all day. And thank you so, so much for sharing and giving us a little insight to your incredible life um and just extraordinary such an inspiration so thank you so so much for for coming on and talking well to thank us. you all so much for researching this and take putting an awful lot of time and effort into it thank you very much richard yeah absolutely and we just wish you all the luck in all your future projects and and of course the book um take risks so everyone should go out and i'm sure it'll be a, a wonderful book to read through the summer and uh you're a true icon a true legend and thank you so much again thank you richard Thank you so much. <laughs> Great. Well, he's a dude, isn't he? Wow. What a superhero. Uh, and and what really came across is that he's obviously still got that um, 
uh, taking risk spirit and and he's a mm. passionate campaigner it was very interesting listening to mm. him talk about inspiring the next generation and getting them off their screens and you know like starter motor does yeah really is totally inspirational i think i've said that way too much um in the last uh, hour but anyway he he is and and what a treat to speak to him um and i can't wait to see this boat sounds incredible um but we'd also love you to share your own one piece at a time. So you can do your pictures, you can put them on Instagram, Facebook, or you can send it in an email. On Facebook or Instagram, just search for Chubb, that's C-H-U-B-B, collect a car, or for email, it's classiccars at chubb.com or browse chubb.com forward slash the interviews. Um, so I want to thank Will for being my co-host today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. Um, and will you please come back and do another one with me? I'd love to. I'd absolutely love to. What a, what a great time it was speaking to Richard. And thank you, Jodie, for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And thanks to all of you for listening to the latest podcast in the Chubb interview series, brought to you by Chubb, who share our passion for classic cars. Wherever you're listening from around the world, we wish you well and send our love. There'll be another episode very soon. And to receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please review and spread the word. And don't forget to email us your stories about your most loved classics. I'm Jodie Kidd. He's Will Dron. Until next time. The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.